coming to you undead from my castle. It is the Dockiverse Podcast, episode 103, Clockwork Raccoon Archers. In this episode, we have a horror movie review and readings from the Doclopedia. And now, please come and let me have a drink. Greetings, gentle listeners. Welcome back to the podcast. I hope you all have had a good week. I am your host, Doc Cross, and I have had a pretty good week, although it's been, as I've said before, hotter than hell. I'm recording this at about 11 o'clock at night. I took my dogs out about an hour ago to go pee in the yard, and it is still mightily hot. But, Theoretically, what the weather people are saying, tomorrow should be much cooler than it was today. I think it hit around 106 today, and tomorrow it should only get to about 86. So that's 20 degrees dropping off. But you never know, because we also have had a very hazy day today. A lot of smoke from a fire up north of here. The Mosquito Fire, you may have read about it in the papers. And, uh, well, it's... uh, making things a little difficult out there as far as breathing and stuff like that. Now, before I go on to thank my patrons, I do want to tell you folks something about this particular podcast and all of the podcasts this month. As I said before, I'm going into horror movie podcast as opposed to the giant creature movies I was doing before. And these first four or five, actually, are a fairly deep dive because they are seminal works of horror from the 1930s, 40s. And those will be Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, Wolfman, and I believe Werewolf Werewolf of London, which was the first werewolf movie that I remember ever seeing, and it was made years before The Wolfman with Lon Chaney Jr. So... Dracula especially had such a profound impact on the movies of the day and movies hereafter that uh, this is going to be a pretty deep dive. We're going to be talking about Dracula here later, and it's probably going to expand the podcast quite a bit if I do that and other segments. So I'm only going to do one other segment, which will be uh, reading from the Doclopedia, because those are fairly quick. So, just so you know, we are doing horror movies for the foreseeable future, probably a year or so. And we're doing some big ones this month because it's October and it's Halloween. And as Dracula told you up front, it's spooky. So, now let's move on to thanking my beloved patrons. These are folks who give me money every month, keep the show going, help me out in other ways. They are, in a word, great. So, thank you, Peter. Thank you, David. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Marion. Thank you, James. Thank you, Bruce. And thank you, Avis. You guys are great, and I hope you enjoy these horror movie deep dives that we have coming up in the month of October. Things will be a little less deep come you know, November and the rest of the year, but these are pretty iconic movies, so we're going to 
jump into them and see what we find out. And now, let's go ahead and get right into the very first one. Our first one, of course, is Dracula. Now, Dracula was a 1931 American pre-code, that's the Hayes Code, supernatural horror film directed and co-produced by Todd Browning from a screenplay written by Garrett Ford and starring Bela Lugosi in the titular role. It's based on the 1924 stage play, Dracula, by Hamilton Dean and John L. Balderston, which in turn is adapted from an 1897 novel, Dracula, by Bram Stoker. Lugosi played Count Dracula, a vampire who immigrates from Transylvania to England and preys upon the blood of living victims, including a young man's fiancé. He played it on stage, too, just so we know that right up front. The movie was produced and distributed by Universal Pictures, and Dracula is the first sound film adaption of the Stoker novel. Several actors were considered to portray the title character, but Lugosi, who had previously played the role on Broadway, like I said, eventually got the part. The film was partially shot on sets at Universal Studios' lot in California, which was reused at night for the filming of Dracula, a concurrently produced Spanish-language version of the story, also by Universal. Now, here is where I stop and point out to you folks that it was not at all uncommon for studios, especially the big studios, to film two versions of a movie back in the early days. The reason was you had a much bigger audience that didn't speak English, so in this case, they were going for the Spanish-speaking audience, and so they filmed a whole other version of Dracula with Spanish-speaking actors and whatnot. And I have not seen all of it. I've seen part of the Spanish version with subtitles and whatnot. And overall, most of the people I know who have seen the whole thing say that it's actually a better movie than Lugosi's Dracula. The reason is it gets into a little more of uh, the, I don't know, sexiness of it. It's a little less uh, uptight because, let's face it, even pre-code, there are a lot of uptight people in America. So now we move on to the fact that Dracula was a commercial and critical success upon release and led to several sequels and spinoffs, and it's been remade I don't even know how many times. It had a notable influence on popular culture, and Lugosi's portrayal of Dracula established the character as a cultural icon, as well as the archetypal vampire in later works of fiction. In 2000, the film was selected by the United States Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry as culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. So, you'll find out that there's actually a fair number of horror movies that got put into the National Film Registry. The next thing I'm getting here from Wikipedia is the plot. And really, I'm not going to talk about it, because if you haven't seen Dracula by now, or some variation on the original movie, go see it, and then come back and listen to the rest of this. Dracula leaves Transylvania, comes to England, bites a girl on the neck, kills her, wants to get another girl, gets her part way, and then eventually gets killed. It doesn't last because he comes back in many, many, many other movies. One of the personal favorite parts of the movie for me is Renfield, who is a crazy person, and he is uh, Dracula's slave and Dracula's 
uh, well, he's Dracula's Renfield, which is what we'd call somebody now who does a vampire's work in the daylight when a vampire can't be doing it. The guy who played Renfield, Dwight Fry, really, really makes you think he's loony as a shithouse rat. It's great. The dialogue for him is great. The lines are, are excellent. He really, really makes you think he's squirrely. The cast for the movie is Bella Lugosi as Count Dracula, Helen Chandler as Mina Seward, David Manners as Jonathan Harker, Dwight Fry as Renfield, Edward Van Sloan as Van Helsing, Herbert Bunston as Dr. Seward, Francis Dade as Lucy Weston, which I believe in the novel was Lucy Westenra, Joan Standing as Nurse Briggs, although there was an error in the opening credits and she was misidentified as a maid, Charles K. Garrard as Martin, Renfield's attendant, and Halliwell Hobbs as Hawkins. There are other people in the movie. In fact, Todd Browning makes a appearance as an off-screen voice of a harbor master. Uh, Carla Lemel, the cousin of producer Carl Lemel, who appears in the start of the film as a woman in the coach-carrying Renfield. And uh, Geraldine Vorjak, Cornelia Thaw, and Dorothy Tree as Dracula's brides. Stoker's novel had already been filmed without his permission as Nosferatu, which is a really good movie. Silent, but spooky. The version of Dracula, who has a different name, of course, Count Orlock. This was filmed in 1922 by German expressionist filmmaker F.W. Murnau. It's a great movie. I will review it a little more another time. But yeah, great movie. And the first filming of Dracula, even though it was done without Stoker's permission or permission of his widow at that point. Universal paid $40,000 for all the rights to the novel and the stage play so that they would have exclusive rights to the Dracula character. This was pretty damn smart of them, considering how everything blew up and went on for decades. Universal also brought Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Louis Bromfield to pin the script to fit this grand-scale vision. Bromfield tried to reconcile the novel and the stage play, and in his draft he suggested that Dracula should be two people, a ghoulish old man at the beginning of the film, and then later on, the much more handsome and rejuvenated Dracula. This was done many, many, many years later in the uh, version with Keanu Reeves and uh, Gary Oldman, but they didn't do it in this one. They changed around Jonathan Harker going to Transylvania and stuck in Renfield. In the stage play, Dracula kissed Mina passionately on the lips, and these things never made it into the movie, either because it was too expensive to do or... Yeah, a little bit too risque. There were several people who were up for playing the role of Dracula before Bela Lugosi. The very first person chosen, the person everybody wanted, was Lon Chaney, Lon Chaney Sr., who had done all kinds of horror movies and was a master of makeup. And, you know, you know who John Lon Chaney is. I don't need to tell you. And he was going to play both the Count and Professor Van Helsing because he had done that several times in silent movies, played two roles a good guy, a bad guy, but he suddenly died, and that threw the casting into chaos, and Lemel, the producer, was not at all interested in Lugosi, despite the fact that he got really good reviews for his portrayal on the stage, and so 
they considered people like Paul Muni, Chester Morris, Ian Keith, John Ray, Joseph Schildkraut, Arthur Edmund Carew, William Courtney, John Carradine, who I think would have been a pretty good choice, Conrad Veidt, and even Lou Ayers. And the problem was that they hired Lou Ayers, and then he had to be recast because something came up, and they cast a guy named Robert Ames. Except Ames was recast with David Manners, who instead went on to play John Harker, and finally, Bela Lugosi, who campaigned hard to get this movie role, got it. As we will find out later, this might have been a mistake on his part. And he actually got the role because he told him he would accept a paltry $500 per week salary. This is in 1931, height of the Depression, instead of a much larger salary. And he got that for seven weeks, so it came to 3500 bucks, And they made a lot of money off of that because they didn't have to pay him, what, seven, eight times that? On September 29, 1930, Dracula began shooting at Universal City on a $355,050 budget on a 36-day schedule. And Todd Browning shot scenes of Dracula's Castle and Borgo Pass all in the first week of production. And according to numerous accounts, the production is alleged to have been a mostly disorganized affair, with the usually meticulous Browning leaving cinematographer Carl Freund to take over during much of the shoot, making Freund something of a uncredited director of the film. The film was kind of screwed up in that regards. Uh, it appears nobody knew what anybody was doing. But as far as other actors... Todd Browning remembered that actress Helen Chandler from the 1928 Broadway play The Silent House, and based on that performance, he chose her for Mina, the heroine. Her salary is $750 per week, making her the highest paid member of the cast. At the time of the filming, though, she was already battling severe alcoholism, and she was known to laugh at Lugosi's mirror ritual that they were shooting at the time. So whenever he'd come to your mirror and he'd act shocked or he'd crash the mirror or whatever, she'd crack up laughing. The peasants in the beginning are praying in Hungarian. There's a reason for that. The signs to the village are all in Hungarian. That's because when Bram Stoker wrote the original novel, the Borgo Pass in Transylvania was in part of the Kingdom of Hungary and within the Austro-Hungarian Empire. By the time the film was made, Transylvania had been part of the Kingdom of Romania since the end of World War I in 1918. So there's a little tidbit for you. Now, one of the things that a lot of people point out when they become very honest about this movie is that although it's a great and historical and, and pretty creepy movie in a lot of ways, it is very much a filmed stage play. It's not anything like later Dracula movies, even later ones that Bela Lugosi did. It is very much uh, like the stage play. Very, I don't know, reserved, I would say, for a horror movie. The special effects were limited pretty much to fog, lighting, and large flexible bats that were shown to be going up and down and flapping their wings. And even when I was a kid and I saw that, I thought they looked fake. Dracula's transition from a bat to a person is always done off camera. Uh, the film also employs extended periods of silence and character close-ups for dramatic effect. And it employs two expository intertitles and a close-up of a newspaper article to advance the story. 
These are all kind of holdovers from the silent era because sound had just come to the movies not long before this, and a lot of people were still getting used to movies talking. So they still use, and the directors were still learning how to make sound movies. So they still used a lot of the uh, silent movie ways of doing things. As far as the music for the movie, owing to the cost of adding an original musical score to a film soundtrack, no score had ever been composed specifically for the film. The music heard during the opening credits, which is an excerpt from Act Two of Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake, was reused in 1932 for another universal horror film, The Mummy, which we'll talk about later this month. During the theater scene where Dracula meets Seward, Harker, Mina, and Lucy, the end of the overture of Wagner's I'm not a German speaker, so Die Meistersinger von Nuremberg can be heard, as well as the dark opening of Schubert's Unfinished Symphony in B minor. The release of Dracula was a very big gamble for a major Hollywood studio to undertake. In spite of the literary credentials of the source material, it was uncertain if American audiences were prepared for a serious, full-length supernatural chiller. Although... American audiences had been exposed to other chillers before, such as The Cat and the Canary. This was a horror story with no comic relief, no trick endings that downplayed the supernatural. It was a vampire movie. Despite this, Dracula proved to be a box office success. When the film finally premiered at the Roxy Theater in New York City on February 12, 1931, released two days later throughout the rest of the United States, newspapers reported that members of the audience fainted in shock at the horror on the screen. This publicity, because it was bullshit, shrewdly orchestrated by the film studio, helped ensure people came to see the film, if for no other reason than curiosity. Within 48 hours of its opening at New York's Roxy Theater, it had sold 50,000 tickets, building a momentum that culminated in a $700,000 profit, the largest of Universal's 1931 releases. And I will point out here that they also released Frankenstein in 1931. The critical reception for Dracula was, and still pretty much is, very, very good. People, you know, the critics liked it. Gets good ratings from most critics. They will sometimes talk about the fact that it's a little stagey looking, because that's the truth. But overall, down through the decades and decades, and it's been almost 100 years now, it's uh, 91 years, it's been very highly rated, very highly regarded by critics and fans of scary movies and all of that. There was a little bit of censorship that went on, not as much as some states and places wanted, because back then, people were trying to censor everything. The most significant deletion was an epilogue, which played during the film's initial run. In a scene similar to the prologue from Frankenstein, and also featuring Universal stalwart Edward Van Sloan, he reappeared in a curtain speech and informed the audience, Just a moment, ladies and gentlemen, a word before you go. We hope the memories of Dracula and Renfield won't give you bad dreams. So just a word of reassurance. When you get home tonight and lights have been turned out and you're afraid to look behind the curtains and you dread to see a face appear at the window, why, just pull yourself together and remember that, after all, there are such things as vampires. That got cut, because I'm sure there were Catholic Church things going on and other religions that just said, no, you can't be saying stuff like that. So they didn't. 
The epilogue was removed out of fear of encouraging a belief in the supernatural, like I just said. The other thing is that audio of Dracula's off-camera death groans, and that's a big criticism that a lot of people have with this movie, is that Dracula dies off-screen. You don't see him die. And they were shortened by partially muting, as were Renfield's screams as he is killed. These pieces of soundtrack were later restored by MCA Universal for its Laserdisc and subsequent DVD releases. So, if you get the DVD now and watch it, you can hear both of them screaming. The big alternate version of it was, like I said, Dracula. It was directed by George Melford at night, using the same sets. Uh, Maybe the same costumes, I'm not sure. It starred Carlos Villarreal as Count Dracula. And it was long thought lost. And then they found a crappy print in the 70s. But then in the early 90s, a good copy was found in Cuba. And the film was preserved by the U.S. National Film Registry of the Library of Congress. And there was a third version of Dracula made, which was basically the Bela Lugosi version, but it was made silent. Because in 1931... There were theaters that had not yet been wired for sound, and during this transition period, many studios released silent versions with intertitles. Now we get into the real meat of Dracula here, folks. Not so much the movie itself, but its legacy. It has tons and tons of sequels, as did a great many of the Universal monster movies, Frankenstein, Wolfman, whatnot. After the commercial and critical success of Dracula... Universal released Frankenstein, and a few years later, in fact, the next year, they released The Mummy. They released The Invisible Man in 33, The Bride of Frankenstein in 35, and A Wolfman in 1941. That really got the ball rolling because the 30s and the 40s, especially the 30s, were huge for horror movies. Once Dracula established that they were popular, they just cranked them out. Later in the 40s, they kind of died back a little bit, but not so bad. They they were still around. They just weren't quite so many of them. Sequels to Dracula included Dracula's Daughter, Son of Dracula, movies like The House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, and Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Universal would only, though, cast Dracula in one more film, which was Abbott and Costello versus Frankenstein. The Gossi also played a vampire in three other movies, including Mark of the Vampire, Return, the Return of the Vampire, and a comedy, Mother Riley Meets the Vampire. This contributed to the public misconception that he portrayed Dracula on films many times, although the other vampire roles had him playing Dracula in all but name, so that's why people got confused. And one of the things about it is that poor old Bela Lugosi became typecast. He was stuck as Dracula. People would see him and they'd hold their coats up over their face and go blood and stuff like that. Eventually, it just ruined him. And he died, I think, broke. And he really, his career never really recovered. This is a man who, back in his home country, was a big, big star on the stage. And this is a guy who, if he got a better chance and not been typecast, probably could have done a lot of good work in movies here. But nope. He got stuck playing Dracula, and that's all people ever thought of him as. A lot of people say that his performance is the definitive Dracula, and that's kind of hard to argue with, because he does have a fairly powerful presence. 
and his slow, deliberate pace and his movements and his performance, saying things like, I bid you welcome, and I never drink wine. They gave his Dracula the air of walking, talking corpse. You know, you kind of got this feeling that, yeah, you know, he does kind of sound like he might be dead. It scared the hell out of a lot of movie audiences. And many close-ups of his face, it was all white and icy silence. You know, he's just staring at the camera leeringly. Uh, that scared people, too. He was, yeah, just a, a iconic role as Dracula. It's a cultural icon, and it put him in the class of a legend in the classic Universal Horror monster movies. I will go on record as saying that I always preferred Christopher Lee's Dracula when he was given good scripts, which towards the end of his run of Dracula, he wasn't. But they're just Dracula's had an impact all over vampire movies. It's still, even today, there are a lot of vampire movies, and you can see the influence of Dracula, the legends of turning into a bat, turning into mist and stuff like that. It's all there. The capes, the way they dress, the way they talk even. I mean, we've got the glittery vampires and things nowadays, but all of these vampires, all of them, owe something to Bela Lugosi as Dracula in the 1931 movie. The interesting thing here, they talk about two people who played Dracula later on and how they felt about Lugosi. Christopher Lee, who played Dracula in a series of Hammer movies, said, this is a quote, Anyhow, about the Lugosi Dracula, I was so disappointed. I absolutely had been wanting to see it for a long, long time. There are aspects of it, for instance, that I considered ridiculous. Dracula is played too nice at the beginning. Practically no menace in the character at all. There is no shock or fright in it. Dracula's hands, too. He held them out stiffly, making him look like a puppet. His smile was not always sinister, either. He, you know, just was not impressed with Bela Lugosi as Dracula. Gary Oldman, on the other hand, who played Dracula in Francis Ford Coppola's adaptation, considered Lugosi to be his favorite Dracula and said about his performance, he was really onto something, the way he moved, the way he sounded, and Oldman based his Dracula's voice on Lugosi's voice. There you go, folks. Dracula one of the more influential horror films. And indeed, I would go so far as to say one of the more influential films that was made in the United States in the early days of motion pictures. To this day, you walk up to somebody and say, do a Dracula impersonation, and they're going to use Bela Lugosi's voice. You know, I want to suck your blood and stuff like that. Yeah, so that's Dracula. And I hope you enjoyed this because this was a long review. <laughs> Next time, we go to the other big daddy of the Universal Horror Films, Frankenstein. It's time for more readings from the Doclopedia. We are still on the theme of those furry little bastards. And this time, we have number 539, those furry little bastards, post-apocalyptic version. Red Davy, Scrounger, Ruins of Las Vegas, Nevada. I hate the pity patty. If I could catch one, I'd kill it and eat it. You hear me, you little motherfuckers? I know you're out there. Sorry, man, but they just been fucking with me for days. Started when I was in the Luxor looking for some canned food. 
I just scored two cans of corn and a can of stewed tomatoes, or all of a sudden, I'm getting pelted with fucking dice and poker chips from up near the ceiling. Those hard-edged casino dice hurt, dog. I tried throwing an old frying pan at them, but the furry little shits are fast as hell. Since then, they've been following me around bugging me, so I'm going to head out of town, maybe over to Henderson. You hear that, you little punks? You'll have to find somebody else to fuck with. Dog Girl Resident, Creekside Estates, Milpitas, California No, these dogs won't bite you unless I tell them to. So yeah, I've been living here with my home dog since two summers ago. Pretty nice houses, the ones that are still standing. Nothing like we had over in Palo Alto when I was a kid, of course. Hunting is pretty good, too, down near the creek. Of course, the dogs keep things fairly safe. The pity patty? Oh, yeah, they come around once in a while, mostly just to bug the dogs and stack up piles of junk near the creek in cool shapes. See that one over there? Looks like a bear, doesn't it? Anyway, I leave them out food for my garden. They really like beets. And sometimes they leave me stuff. Last time it was four bottles of scotch. So, you know, score. Gino, Wanderer, Rome, Italy. I was five years old when I first encountered the pity patty. Yes, right after things went bad. My father was dead and my mother was dying, and I did not know what I was going to do. I was from a wealthy family, not a street kid, so I was not used to doing things to survive. The pity patty came to me the day mother died. I heard bad things about them from adults, but they were very nice to me, very gentle. They showed me that many people had planted gardens where I could go and get vegetables and fruits to eat. They showed me how to fish and how to catch and milk a goat. They stayed with me for five years until one night when I was ten, when they must have decided that I was old enough to survive, they went away. I never even saw them go. That was nearly 20 years ago, and I will never say anything bad about the pity patty. Not even when I return to my camp and find my sleeping bag full of stones. Number 540. Those furry little bastards. Fantasy version. Karak, barbarian swordsman. I'll make this short, scribe. Then you will leave me to my ale and my foul mood. I am Karak of the Northern Horde. My people live in cold, rough, and godless land. I slew my first opponent, a Driscan snake man, when I was but six years old, and I have fought and fought with the greatest warriors of this world. I have won and lost kingdoms, and my name was feared everywhere. Was feared. No more. In one night, those thrice-cursed furry little bastards drugged me, and then tattooed my body with tiny ponies, flowers, baby ducks, and little bears with big eyes. I have gone from a fearsome warrior to a laughingstock. Now leave me alone to my drinking. Flynn Evensoul, Elvish Adventurer We were so near to success, perhaps a hundred yards away from the room containing the scepter of the steel god. We had fought our way down deep into the caverns past slimes and night-runners and hobgoblins and dozens of other creatures, most of them trying hard to kill us first. We had gotten past traps and over pits, and we were so close. Then they came, maybe a dozen of them, the pity patty. They started dancing and singing and playing kazoos, and before we could shut them up, the dragon awoke. 
We didn't even know it was there. So deep had it been in its slumber for centuries, probably. It would not have even noticed us as we took the scepter, but those furry little bastards woke it up. Oh, how we ran. Even when we reached the tunnels, the dragon could not follow us down because we knew he was using larger passages and we had no time to waste fighting other creatures. We ran for hours, and every time we stopped for breath, there were the pity patty. By the time we escaped three days later, Rancifal had lost an arm, Gilfie was half mad, Pluke was sick from fever, Arlista was blinded, and I was cursed with boils. If I never see another pity patty again, it will be too soon. Drovinus Salfazar, Master Wizard Oh, yes, the pity patty. Not native this world, you know. Oh, no, indeed, they're almost certainly just passing through. Still, they do raise a hell of a ruckus, don't they? <laughs> Relabeled all of Olanga Muradak's potion components, you know. She thought she was mixing up a simple healing draught until it exploded, causing her to glow in the dark and stink like a Hybrithian cheese. <laughs> Quite funny, but nobody would ever say that to Olanga's face, mind you. Same with the old Finderwick Quats. The pity patty mucked around with his wands so that he went to toss a lightning bolt at that female bugbear, and he actually cast a love beam. Hit her square in the chest, and she went head over heels for poor Findy. She hung around outside his tower for months. <laughs> oh, he was terrified she'd have her way with him. <laughs> it was pretty funny, I'll tell you. No, young fellow, despite the amusements they may have given some of us with their antics, you'll find no love for pity patties hereabout. Okay, gentle listeners, we are at the end of the program, where I thank you all for listening, and I do thank you. If you have any suggestions, comments, or questions, I can be reached on Facebook, where I'm Doc Cross, on WordPress at the Docverse blog, via email at agentroscoe at gmail.com, if you're listening via Anchor, you can leave a voicemail there. And if you're a patron, you can leave a message on my Patreon page, and I will get an email very quickly telling me all about it. If you would like to support me via Patreon and hear these podcasts two months before they go up on Anchor, just go over to www.patreon.com forward slash dot cross, pledge as little as a dollar a month, and you can hear all of these podcasts, you can read all of the things I've written. You'll hear the very few mini-podcasts I've done, and I hope to change that in this coming year. And there's PDFs and all kinds of stuff over there. Now, if you only want to make a one-time donation, or the donation once in a while without signing up every month, then you want to go and use my Ko-fi page. That's K-O-F-I. I guess they pronounce it coffee, too. And that's at DocCross4591. So go to Kofi, type in DocCross4591, pledge whatever you feel like, and thank you very much. Now, if you'd like to sponsor this podcast or advertise on it, and I'm willing to let you do either one, get in touch with me by any of the methods I just mentioned a little bit earlier. Our intro music for this episode was Toccata and Fugue in D Minor, by Johann Sebastian Bach, and that came off of the Free Music Archives. This podcast and everything on it, except for the music, is copyright 2022 by Doc Cross. I'll see you all soon. Live long and prosper. Ha 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 ha.